first, another man who's often sung about human distress. This was uh, and is still is Ralph McTell's signature song, Streets of London. It's notable for being one of the most covered songs by other artists in the 50-plus years since it was recorded. We'll hear Ralph's original after we talk to him, but I know he likes this version from Sinead O'Connor. Sinead's beautiful version of that. Ralph McTell, who wrote that lovely hymn to the homeless and lonely people, turns 80 this year. He was a big star once, a good-looking young folk singer with a huge hit song, and he's written many excellent songs off many albums since. But that's the one every everyone remembers. Ralph is here very soon for concerts in Auckland and Christchurch. Good morning, Ralph. Very nice to have you on. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I'm very pleased to be with you. Yeah. I notice it's been pretty well exactly 20 years since you were here with Steel Eye Span, I think. Yes, I was. I didn't know it was 20 years ago, though. Goodness me, that's amazing. Yeah, that was quite a tour, and we, we had a lot of fun. And the day we arrived in New Zealand, Billy Connolly was playing at another theatre, so we all went up and you know gave him a surprise visit. It was a wonderful... Because uh, we we all knew him, and it was a rather wonderful occasion. And... Uh, We've got the photographs and great memories. You've had your own music and talk show on the BBC, and Billy Connolly was one of your guests, wasn't he? And he also used one of your songs for a TV series, I think. Yes, they did. Um, well, Billy was... I didn't actually have a talk show. I had a, um, I was persuaded against my better judgment at the time, but it turned out to be very a very good decision. I did a children's series called... Alphabet Zoo, which yes. was about animals and letters. And then I did another, they created a series of, for me called Tickle on the Tongue, like a play on words with a little village in, in England somewhere where I was a, an unexplained lodger. And I invited guests, they would come into this little shop and tell me their adventures of the week. And when Billy heard about it, he said to me, oh, I'd love to do that. So they created a role called, uh, I think it's called, um, he was the dustman anyway, I can't remember his name. And uh, I wrote a special song for him and uh, we did that together. And Billy and I kind of go back such a long time and, um, you know, probably 1969 when we met. So we've been mm. long mates ever since. And then he did that wonderful uh, tour of um, he had he called them the world tour of New Zealand, the world tour of Australia, <laughs> world tour of Wales and Ireland, and and I was lucky enough to be invited to play write some music for that, and uh, I wrote a song for the Australian version called 
um, in the Dreamtime, which I will be playing while I'm in Australia. And I think it was John McCusker did the music for World Tour of New Zealand. Um, but Billy and I are both very fond of being down here in the Antipodes, and uh, we often talk about about it and the feeling of kinship that we have, and uh, it's a very special place for us. And you recorded Unknown Soldier with spoken words from Billy and also Anthony Hopkins, didn't you? We did. Uh, Billy, uh, you see, uh, I wanted to, uh, from being a little boy, realising what the unknown soldier signified, uh, it was always with me. And then one day somebody said to me, well, you know, there's some footage that exists. I don't don't know if you'll be able to use it of the the, the arrival of, um, of the boy from the... Uh, fields of France or uh, in fact no one knows where he came from that was all part of the mystery and I checked out this film and I just said I've got to do something and if I don't do it now it won't ever happen because I was a cer- of a certain age so in in uh, I think it was 1919 they brought him home and the, the whole ritual sometimes British pageantry they get it right and this in this instance the whole thing was filmed the exhumation of four bodies from the battlefields that were unknown with boys with no names and couldn't be identified. And they blindfolded a general who twisted the twisted round in, in the in the chapel and pointed to uh, um, a body and that body was was wrapped up and brought home. And, and the whole thing was just incredible. So I thought to represent our home nations, i.e. Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, I would I would um, because I'm pretty sure that he was a British soldier, um, that I would invite Billy to do the Scottish voice. I would do the singing. And Billy knew... Um, but, well, Billy put me in touch with someone who knew Liam Neeson. And Liam agreed straight away to do it because he'd known an old boy in his village up in the north of Ireland who had served in both battles of the Somme. And, uh, and then... I said to him, you don't happen to know um, Sir Anthony Hopkins, do you? He said, yeah, I did a film with him once, and we got Sir Anthony to do the Welsh voice. So, And it's on YouTube if any of your listeners want to watch it uh, because, you know, obviously I couldn't encompass all the Allied soldiers from all over the, the globe who took part in that terrible carnage. But my theme was the ones who were never identified and at Ypres in... Um, in France, in Belgium, sorry, in Belgium, the names of 50,000 unidentified soldiers' names are written because they, their bodies were never found. They're written on the, on the memorial up there. And every night, every night since the end of the First World War, seven buglers go out and play the last post. And it's one of the most incredibly moving ceremonies that you're ever likely to see. The men in gate, no Kiwis, no Kiwis there on the, on that great list of men, actually. No, I don't think so. But there are some Muslim soldiers and uh, and soldiers. That, the names you would recognise, I, I I couldn't say for sure. Is yeah. you just don't have to read fifty thousand names. But I know when I looked at the wall, I was. I felt myself welling up. There were names of boys that I'd been to school with. You know what I mean? The surnames and the first names of young lads and, you know, not much older than 17 or 18, just... uh, uh, And it is an incredibly beautiful ceremony. And the people in the city, 
of Ypres. I played in a cathedral, managed to get through the song without weeping, just about. And uh, then I went and played up at the Menon Gate with a friend of mine and uh, for a special ceremony that evening, which was uh, was a high point for me. I must be honest, as a as a guitar player, singer, songwriter, to be invited to do that was an incredible uh, honour. Yeah, I can imagine that. I can imagine that. This may seem like a silly question, and it may be. Are you the only person in the world with the surname McTell? I think so. And it's really, <laughs> that's a good question. You know, I took the name from one of my guitar heroes, the beautiful singing and playing and composition of a guy called Blind Willie McTell, an old um, African-American musician that made lots of records in the 30s and 40s, up to the 40s, and was rediscovered in the 1960s. And and I just loved his 12-string guitar playing and his beautiful voice. Of course, Bob Dylan has written a song called No One Sings the Blues Like Blind Willing Me Tell, which is an absolutely gorgeous song. Um, and so I, I, when I sort of began a semi-professional career, I thought uh, my real name is May, M-A-Y, and I thought, well, I'll, I think it sounds better to have a double-syllable surname. I don't know who who might agree or might, or disagree, but it sounded better to me. And so when I got my record contract and wanted to change it back, they said, oh, no, McTell's a much better name. And I think they were probably right. In fact, if I have to sign anything in my real name, I have to practice it first because I've signed <laughs> so many autographs with McTell. It looks like I'm trying to forge my own signature nowadays. <laughs> People will get suspicious, wouldn't they? Oh, what's my name again? <laughs> Yes, exactly. I thought it was. You see, I googled it, and I thought I saw another McTell. And I thought, oh no, it's not that uh, he isn't the only other person called McTell. Um, but the one I saw was Blind Willie McTell's sister, I think. So, in fact, oh, that could be. Yeah, it could be. But I know she couldn't be possibly be alive. <laughs> no, no, that's well. right. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it was. I think the re the registrar got in a tangle trying to register Willie's name because I think he's probably his slave name or his owner's name, which most black American uh, people have, is from the people who once had them as slaves, was McTavish. And I don't think he could, re according to research, he couldn't spell it, so he wrote McTell and ah. created a name that is uh, inadvertently handed to Willie and then to me. Now, your tour... You've got it. You have a Gibson guitar, I know, from 1952. You may have more than one. Are you bringing that uh, really well-known guitar down? I have got. You know what? The last time I came down here to Australia, anyway, the, the humidity and everything played havoc with it. And I, I have tried so hard to find another as good as that that I could risk bringing. But you can imagine. But guess what? I found one, and I'm bringing that to New Zealand. It's another 1952 ah. Gibson J45, and I just hope it will behave itself. It set, it seems to have settled down now, but there's nothing compares to the tone of that. And and you know, since you mentioned guitar, that's my driver. I love the guitar. I've always wanted to be a good guitar player. And I've just happened to have written some songs on the way, but guitar still intrigues and delights me. And I've just been playing this morning, been in my motel room. I play every day, whether I'm working or not. And I just love the sound of the acoustic guitar. And I love the sound of a Gibson J45 in particular. And I've got two of them, yeah. at least two. Actually, like fib, at least two I have. <laughs> um, I've bought several over the years just in case I didn't have the best one, but I think I have the best one. I remember you played the Isle of Wight 
Festival. This is, you know, from your big star top of the bill days, because I know you used to sell out the Royal Festival Hall in London and the Royal Albert Hall, and you were top of the bill at the Montreux Jazz Festival. And at the Isle of Wight, you played with Leonard Cohen, I think, and Jimi Hendrix. How good was Jimi looking back as a fellow guitarist? Well, I just wish that I... I wish I could tell you the truth. Well, I'm going to tell you the truth. I was... I could. I had no idea what was going to hit me when I walked out on that stage and saw they now estimate 500,000 people, a festival run by 25 to 28-year-olds with no clue on how to manage anything. And yet it was both the beginning and end of something. All these stars, I was, I was wearing a shirt that I'd swapped for a set of old guitar strings in Milan some years before, and I just wasn't prepared for either the impact of this or what it meant. And it took years before I realised that it was a, it was both the end and the beginning of something. And and the fact that I was going to see Jimi Hendrix, who was a guitar hero of anyone that likes music, must admit to that. The festival discipline, such as it was, broke down towards the end of the of the evening. And my manager who was probably quite wise and a survivalist, said, we've got to go. This is going to get out of hand. You know, all these people and no one to shepherd it or whatever you like. And so I missed Jimmy. And I waited 25 years before I saw the show that he did. And it was worth the wait because it does exist on film. And it's an extraordinary tour de force, really. And to, for me... You know, he only did one other concert after that, but I didn't. I didn't see it at the time. I saw the others, but I didn't see the one I really wanted to see, which was Jimmy. But we did in the end. Um, I never met him, but I. I mean, that experience is indelibly uh, in my mind and thankfully there's a few snaps few photographs of it as well so I know I was there. Yeah I didn't know that yeah. It's funny yeah. how many people missed him at Woodstock of course because he played on the final morning from memory and a whole lot of people have gone <laughs> had traipsed off from Woodstock as well Yes it's extraordinary That it all adds to the myth and the magic it, it of the man you know, yeah. So, yeah. Unassuming is an adjective pinned on you all the time in publicity and it's one that kind of implies meekness, and you're not meek by any means. <laughs> and, um, I mean, for example, during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, you'd play there when nobody else was prepared to. Did you ever have any bother yeah, I, doing that, by the way, just looking back? Uh, only only the emotional one. You know, like uh, one time I walked out on stage in, at the height of the Troubles, and God knows they, they were hellish, um, you know, for the poor people who lived amongst them. And I'm not drawing any distinction between them. People are people, and uh, but I got you know I you don't know who's come to your gig whether they're Republican sympathisers or you know unionist sympathisers. That once you get in and you're playing music, the whole place stood up before I played a single note and gave me a five minute ovation or something. Wow. And and you know you 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 just and I would say to people, for goodness sake, go these people are one of the most wonderful audiences, and they need music, they need music, they need you to come over and do it. But in a band situation. You only need one of the members to say, I'm sorry, I, I don't feel I should go. And then the band can't go. So I think there was a bit of that. And I think there would have been more musicians that would have gone if if the whole band had been prepared to. But there were others who did it too. And the rewards are not financial, but they are part of the history of, of what I do. And, I, and I'm not trying to milk it. I, I love playing in Ireland. In fact, I've just been... Uh, over and done a, a three-week tour of, of North and South in, in, in the Republic and in the North and loved every minute of it. 
which was an important thing for you to do, but there is also the matter of the title of the album, Hill of Beans, and I'm assuming you borrowed it from the movie Casablanca and Humphrey Bogart said it, and that implies that... that whatever you and I manage to do in life, it's not going to be very important or permanent in the great scheme of things. That's what I took from the title. Well, you've got it right. You've got it absolutely. That's exactly what I meant. When you get to live as long as I have and you don't die the rock and roll death and you're still knocking on in your late 70s like I am, you look at art and the way it's 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 banded about and, and its importance. To me... I, I dispute that. I think art is important to the individual or the artist and possibly to a few appreciators, but it changes very little. It only alters style, in my opinion. I mean, I've, f- for me, I, I'm deeply moved by certain paintings, but when everybody, for example, and I'm probably going to get some flack for this, that Guernica is one of the greatest war paintings ever, I don't get that. I've seen pictures when I was much younger. I was just thinking this morning... Of, of Salvador Dali's premonition of the Spanish Civil War, which shocked me, shook me to my boots. That's a painting and a half that depicts the civil, you know, um, unrest and division better than any anything that, like Guernica. So really, uh, the thing that inspired it was, I was reading a book about, it's called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, but it was written by her partner, Gertrude Stein. And already there's a, a play on words, and it's all smarty and very clever and all that, or not. Is it nonsense? And I, so while I was writing the song of them discovering Pablo Picasso and Georges Braque and their little salon in the middle of France, in the middle of Paris, sorry, on the Rue Fleurou, there were soldiers in trenches down the road, shivering and being shot at. And you know, there was they were rattling around with it and having their prattling and going on and 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 their the great philosophy of art and painting and everything. Yes, it's it's right, but I wanted to mix as many things up in one song as I could. It's on these on the same album, <laughs> yeah. and and to be truthful, that that in the end, the lives of three little people don't. That's I thought Bogart's speech at the end was superb, so I took it and. Um, wove it into the tune that I had. And I mean, I'm, I'm always tempted to break into, you must remember that, you know, that the kiss is just a kiss of smiles, you know, as time goes by. But I don't. I want it to stand on its own. But I very seldom play it because it's quite tricky for me. I'm not a pianist, although I'd like to be. But it, it's my reflections on art, having had a long time to think about it. Yes, it's essential, but it changes nothing. I don't know. I mean, 200 cover versions of Streets of London, and I think you ditched the song for a while for obvious reasons, um, but you, you know, you, you're tired of playing it, but, but you couldn't ditch it forever. Um, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not tired of playing it. No, I don't I'm mean you are now. I don't not. mean you are now. But, but... I, did get, I did get to be a little bit. It's actually, apparently, it's near a four, it's 400 plus, I think, oh, so it? somebody's <laughs> recalculated, so it's gone up. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have done it. The thing is that my point was 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 going to be that it's a song that will still be referred to, I would think, in twenty one twenty four and uh, unearthed and heard, even as an historical document. And a whole lot of people now um, won't be recipients of that honour with their songs. So I think you actually have achieved a kind of immortality in that sense. 
Well, wouldn't that be wonderful that, you know, that's got nothing. I always say that Streets of London seems to have its own career because it doesn't change. It is there and it exists. Whereas the artist in me, if that's if that's not too grand a word, continues to strive to write, not a follow up, just keep trying to write better songs and, and keep your standards high and not pander to what you could perceive to be the commercial. But I always describe Streets of London as a little blip in my graph that suddenly connected when I was quite young. And it's been difficult sometimes to move past it. And, but you know, when you look back, as I do frequently now, um, there's so much to look back to that I realise this is what I've done with my life. This yeah. is what I've done. I've chosen to play the acoustic guitar, travel the world, share songs, write songs. And I think I've been very fortunate. And I might have written a song that might outlast me. Well, that's that's my, that's my the cherry on the cake. No, oh, that's absolutely certain. And you have a, a happy family. Uh, does it feel strange to have lived that life completely music-oriented? Because... Sliding doors. Um, what if your family had moved to Australia if your dad hadn't run off and left you in yeah. the lurch? Because you nearly immigrated. Uh, what would you I, have done, do you think? Well, I know that I, the one thing I do know, I would not have been able to walk, work inside. I'd have to be an outside person because that's still my 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 um, thing. I mean, if I wasn't playing music, I'd have to work outside. I've often thought that just as Bob Dylan's art has shaped the man, even though you only got to go back and look at his early pictures to see he looked a fairly conventional middle-class boy from the Midwest. Once he started writing songs and copying Woody Guthrie, slowly this new image emerges and his work has shaped him to the man, the genius that he is now. And I think work, the the the, the fact that I stayed in England and we did suffer the rotten weather and we did have the the deprivation of not enough to eat and we did have the struggle of a single parent family in tough times after the war made me sensitive to other people made me kind of think about things from a very early age in fact i've tried to date when i when i first saw the image of the old boy in in the market in croydon which is where i grew up Mm. uh apparently nonchalantly kicking through the the de- you know the debris after a market day, but he was actually looking for stuff, and I th- I think I was ten, so I certainly know that that my observation had begun at that time about other people and um, and the fact that we had somewhere to live and although things were tough, we had a very strong mum, my brother and I, and uh, you know we were we had a sensibility of others that were possibly worse off than us from quite a an early age and so I think I would have been a different bloke if I'd had a dad in fact my brother who was a very wise man just before he passed away uh nearly two years ago coming May 18 months ago he said to me you know the best thing that ever happened to you and me Ralph he said we grew up without a dad because we we it's not always the case because fatherless boys do tend to wander but so did we but we had good wandering, you know, yeah. not not aggressive. We had good wandering, and we learned to be men and dads without a guide. And um, yeah, it made us who we are. So events, I think, I do believe in the mixture of nature and nurture. So uh, I think what happened to us made the men, made us the men we are. So and there was there was an old man. I've never known. I wondered if it was a composite kind of, um, you know. 
portrayal. No, they're three old men, three different men. Yeah, actually. but the one that opens uh, the song. Yeah, the one that was, he was real, absolutely real. I can see him now when I close my eyes. And and the other, the other old guy, actually, the only cheat in that song is the words Seaman's Mission because the where I saw this old boy with his metal ribbons was at a working men's hostel, which was, uh, you know, cheap lodging uh, at the end of a street where I live. Uh, um, it was like it used to be a couple of bob a night to stay there and they let this old boy stay on. And you can't fit in working men's hostel, so I changed it to Seaman's Mission because it was a short <laughs> of syllables. And uh, but the image has the same effect, I think. <laughs> you know, Streets of London is bang on relevant again. In fact, it's it's never lost its relevance. But other songs of yours that aren't heard a lot have huge relevance now as well. I think Bentley and Craig, for example, about the execution of a boy who didn't kill anyone there'll be people who know that song yeah. well but most people possibly won't even won't ever hear it well that's absolutely true i i you know the thing was i i always wanted to have a big cause to write about and when woody guthrie addressed uh, his his writing because he was a big influence on me too i suddenly thought well we have the most hideous case of of, of injustice right here in croydon where i grew up and in fact, my mum admitted to me that that she'd actually met Derek and she knew Iris, his sister, and he was a simple boy, had to have a little note to go shopping with, you know. And uh, yeah, your listeners will now be curious as to they have to find the song somewhere because I think this album that it's on is, has been deleted. But I did play it one night here in Australia where I'm speaking to you from, and... <laughs> It was extraordinary the reaction to it, and when I've done it abroad, people think you've got you've got the wrong you've got it wrong in the song lyric. They I said no no that's the whole point of the song that the guy that didn't do it got executed, and the boy that did it he might even still be alive. He'd be in his mid eighties now if he was still alive. And they they and they knew the truth. The, the authorities knew the truth that he hadn't he hadn't done the killing. Oh yes, absolutely. But someone had to pay. You know, the the war had only been over a little while. Uh, you know, it was a policeman that was that shouldn't have actually been there that got shot in the incident. And I don't think there was any forensic ev evidence on the bullets that were fired either. They just needed to show, make an example of someone. And they couldn't do it to the boy that allegedly fired the shot. So they, they, they did it to the, his accomplice, saying that he was, even though he had a mental age of eight years old and was an epileptic boy with very special needs you know they took his life at age 18 or 19 yeah yeah and people can, people can look up bentley and craig and find out the whole story yeah it's read a, the story it's an incredible story but be prepared to be there are also add-ons to the story that that re recent research has revealed which are even which are just as just as horrifying but i must say that finally iris is derek's sister who campaigned relentlessly for 40 odd years for a pardon was denied to see the pardon. She passed away before, but we did meet, and I sang at her funeral. And when Derek was finally given a royal pardon, his remains, such as they might have been, were exhumed, and he was brought to a cemetery in Croydon. And I sang Bentley and Craig at the um, at the recommittal. You're a good man, Ralph McTell. Well. What else could we we could try to be good? Plenty of weaknesses, I can assure you. But no, justice from a little boy. Justice. I mean, what better message could a, an eight-year-old have? Because that's how old I was. So, that to try and understand what was going on there. So I've always 
had a good sense of fair play, I think. Let's get on let's get on to a couple of areas where you may not have been that good, although I have no idea what these stories involve, but I saw the publicity blurb for your tour says you once hitchhiked with Rod Stewart and you got into a crap game with Tom Waits in LA. So two questions. Yeah. Did anything interesting happen with Rod Stewart and did you lose money to Tom no, Waits? He was he was he was far too self absorbed and he was with a guy that I know he would love to find. We used to call him Italian Tony. He was a Cockney boy, just like the rest of us, and he was um, he w- they the two of them were already in the car that I stopped. The guy picked us up, and I went in the back with them. But Rod was a very self-absorbed uh, young man, and he was part. Apparently, the those who had money used to hitchhike out of London um, to the local railway station and get on the milk train and go down to Brighton, which is only fifty miles away, and we just sit about on the beach being in you know windswept and interesting so we thought as beatniks you know <laughs> that's that was the, the, they were called weekend ravers by some but there were some real beatniks guys that lived on their wits and wrote poems that nobody would read and rod was attracted to that and i remember that incident with but with with um it's even funnier with the story about tom waits i was in a bar that i had played in 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 los angeles called the troubadour which is in la and he walks in and I recognised him straight away because I loved his first album and had actually recorded one of his songs. And and he, he just sat down at the table I was sitting at. He said, yeah, man, you play craps? And I said, no. He said, do you want to? I'll teach you how to play. And I said, OK. And I was smiling to myself because Tom is always in theatre. Do you know what I mean? He's always in costume. Yeah. He's always living the part. So he, he he's a middle-class boy too, but he lives the part... But what a musician and what a writer of melody and what a he's better at the beat poetry than the beat poets were. I think he's an extraordinary performer. Anyway, he taught me to play craps and he's a gentleman because I let him win five dollars. I wasn't really interested. I was just intrigued by the whole theatrical <laughs> process, you know, and uh, he'll never know unless you tell him. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell him. It's just between you and me. Look, lovely to have you touring. Um, so you're 80 at the end of this year. I bet you don't feel it. No, I, I'm starting to creak a bit. I've got to be honest, but I've, I've, um, you know, when you get to this age, you nothing, you don't get away with it all entirely. But I, I must be honest. I, I've been very fortunate, and I'm reasonably fit. I'm a, I find the travelling is is more exhausting than it used to be. But as soon as I get on stage, it's all worth it, you know. And uh, you know, I'm doing better than. A lot of folks, and I'm I'm clinging to this adage that old age is a privilege not granted to everyone. Ah. So that's uh, that's, I'm clinging to that. So (laughs) I'm doing all right, and that is true as well. Uh, Always nice to hear that song again, which we will um, from you, Ralph. And lovely to talk to you about the past. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for some great questions, and uh, I'm really looking forward to my trip over very shortly saying for several years now this might be my last time but something comes up and here i am again so i'm not going to say goodbye it's just farewell and we'll uh, carry on indeed indeed all right lovely <laughs> lovely to have met you too thank you and you thanks very much okay. and bye-bye for now bye-bye